0: So oh, it's nice to be here. It's been a while since I've been here. Of course, every time I come, there are more Buddha figures. <laughs> it's a little over, a little, a little overwhelming. Well, Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Kuan Yin's, yes, the whole, the whole sacred art tradition, exuberantly expressed. Um, What I would uh, like to talk about uh, tonight is um, I'd like to talk about some practices that I've been doing for a very long time that um, in most cases come uh, from the um, Mindfulness Sutra and from the Anapanasati Sutra, the Sutra on Mindfulness with Breathing In and Mindfulness with Breathing Out and in particular, Larry Rosenberg's uh, translation and commentary on that sutra, which I recommend, called Breath by Breath. Um, I've worked with a number of different uh, commentaries on the Mindfulness Sutra, and um, what I have found quite useful is to work with uh, at least three Uh, commentaries at any given time. So that if I look at a verse or a pair of verses and then go to several different commentaries, it helps unpack the text in a way that I find quite useful. Um, As uh, the person who introduced me uh, said, um, my home path is uh, in the Soto Zen tradition. My first... uh, formal uh, Buddhist meditation teacher was Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, around whom the San Francisco Zen Center started. And um, But before that, I had studied Buddhism as an undergraduate at Stanford. And it was only when I met Suzuki Roshi that I realized, uh, oh, here is somebody who's actually practicing what I've studied uh, in uh, text-based material. And... Um, particularly in the Soto Zen tradition, there is a very strong influence from the Theravadan tradition. Uh, And there also, especially in the ritual and ceremony, a very strong influence in Vajrayana. So I've studied with uh, Vajrayana teachers, one lama in particular, who I studied with quite closely for about six years. And he uh, he was very supportive. He said, I do not want you to uh, become a tantrika, a, a practitioner of tantra. I want you to stay with your home path, but if anything I can teach you will help illuminate your home path, uh, I'm happy to support you in that, in that uh, pursuit. And of course, uh, from practicing with him, I began to see how uh, Vajrayana had influenced, particularly the ritual and ceremony in Soto Zen, in, Japan, in China and in Japan, um, and also in the way temples are laid out to replicate the, uh, the Buddha's body. Uh, but in terms of the basics of meditation, what I've really um, uh, depended upon uh, are the commentaries and teachings uh, in the Theravada tradition. Um, I think that uh, one of the hazards for those of us who come from the Zen tradition, is a tendency for rigidity. And uh, I'm always very happy to sit with people who are practicing in the Theravadan tradition, because there's uh, much more ease. It's not about uh, you know, what my husband calls the Germanic influence, in Soto <laughs> does <him. laughs> Well, he's a German scholar. So <laughs> but there is a kind of, uh, um, hazard, I would say, in the Zen tradition, of uh, becoming uh, very strict, and sometimes overly so, and th- so with a certain amount of rigidity. So um, I include, a in my own practice and in what I teach, I teach and practice a uh, Jikung sequence called the Eight Pieces of Brocade, and I do a lot of walking meditation um, about... Five years ago, my husband and I moved up to Mendocino County, and we built a 271-foot, four-foot-wide walking deck that runs along the breadth of the hill uh, far enough down so that uh, the road noises and all are not uh, so noticeable. And uh, so if the weather is not, uh, if it's not too rainy, I, I almost always do at least uh, uh, four rounds of walking meditation on that deck, and uh, the Jikung sequence, and then I sit. And I'll do uh, that sequence again uh, uh, another time. Uh, Because I'm interested in making sure that I'm practicing sitting meditation with a certain amount of pliancy. I don't think you can have a pliant mind if you don't have a pliant body. So uh, cultivating some flexibility in the body, I think, is extremely important. Um, I think that for any of you who uh, have a yoga practice, doing that before you practice sitting meditation can also be very uh, beneficial. So what I'd like to uh, talk about uh, this evening are, several practices, just for starters anyway, having to do with the body, having to do with uh, uh, speech, and having to do with, um, with mind. And in particular, I'm interested in body and speech practices. Um, so whenever I sit or stand or walk or lie down, any one of the f- so-called four noble postures. I want to pay particular attention. The piano is shooting things at the front row. Take it, t- excuse me, t- take it as a blessing, a piano blessing. <laughs> uh, where, where was I? Um, yeah, particular, yes, yeah, my, my attention <laughs> Uh, that's called distraction. (laughs) Um, I want to um, emphasize how important it is to note, to identify, observe, identify, and name whatever arises in the mind and whatever arises in the physical body and whatever arises out of one's mouth. But in the way of noting observing, identifying, naming, and then shift to a neutral body sensation, and then the breath. Otherwise, you get lost in thinking about whatever's come up in the mind. And that, as I think most of us know, can be a very long journey. I may may not come back for a couple of weeks. (laughs) So. I'm very interested, uh, in one of the reasons I I, uh, I need a new knee, I have bone on bone in this knee, so I'm not able to sit uh, cross-legged, uh, uh, although I apparently will be able to eventually. But in the several years that this uh, kneecap, has, knee has been uh, disintegrating, I've been using this raised bench. So in sitting uh, on the bench, or for those of you sitting on the chair, um, what I recommend is having the sits bones and the feet be, ev- the weight be evenly balanced between the sits bones and your feet. Um, we culturally are very practiced at leaning. And um, we often lean back, which means that the head center for perception, the heart center for emotions, this center right here, but right just in front of the spine, and the belly center for spiritual strength and stability are not aligned one on top of the other. If you sit in a chair that's got a sloping back, then you'll be out of alignment. So even when I'm driving the car, I make a point of having my hands evenly uh, placed on the steering wheel, and I have the back of the seat adjusted in such a way that I have support into the lower back, Um, and I usually am not actually leaning against the car seat. So that's one example of bringing mindful awareness to the alignment of the body, and my recommendation is that there's great fruitfulness in periodically during the day doing a scan of the body just to see, am I in alignment or am I out of alignment? Somebody I've been practicing with for a long time has a very strong tendency to lean his head one way or the other. And he has probably from a, an injury when he was quite young playing sports, one shoulder is higher than the other. So he's not in alignment. And he leans either into or away from that raised sho- shoulder. But if he brings attention to that shoulder, he can then let it drop and bring the head back. So for him, during sitting meditation, and also during walking med- meditation, but mostly in sitting, he periodically is checking. How's the head? Is is there some leaning? Um, If you have the tendency to do a lot of thinking uh, when you announce that you're meditating, that will usually manifest like this. The chin will stick out. It's as though we're leaning into our thoughts. So sometimes when I'm doing a long retreat and I start meeting with people and I'll say to somebody, you seem to be thinking a lot today. How did you know? Well of course the body reveals what's going on. So if you think of the face as a plane and move it back so you get some double chins then you have that alignment of the head center the heart center and the belly center. Uh you also will notice a big difference in the discomfort in your back if you're if you're are not sitting in, if you're not using the meditation mudra uh, like this, or you could do this, if your hands are resting on your, the thighs, make sure that your elbows are underneath your shoulders. If the elbows are slightly forward, or in some cases quite a bit forward, you'll notice you'll feel some strain in your lower back. And you will not have that strain in your back if the elbows are underneath the shoulders. So what I want to do is I want to be able to draw an imaginary line from the nose, chin, heart center, navel, and the ear, shoulder, and elbow, and hip. And the trick is, of course, to have that alignment without rigidity. Um, I've been for several decades doing a mindfulness practice that um, probably many of you uh, know, which is that when you go through a doorway, you don't step on the threshold, but you step over the threshold with the leg closest to the hinge side of the door. It's picky. <laughs> it's another way of putting it more uh, evenly is it's uh, specific. And um, the only place I have trouble as a result of doing this practice is I teach in Juno a couple of times a year. And when I walk from where I st- the people I stay with to downtown Juno where there's an office where I could meet with people. I go by the bank, the Wells Fargo bank, and I'm on the sidewalk, but they've got one of those glass doors that's got a seeing eye, something. And so the doors, when I'm out on the sidewalk, the doors suddenly open. There's no hinge, it's just sliding glass doors. I'm never quite sure what to do with that particular set of doors. But apart from those particular doors, I recommend the practice uh, what I call the threshold practice. And what I've noticed is that um, I must go through a doorway of some kind or another anywhere from 15 to 25 times a day. And I may not be entirely um, aware of the that I'm doing the practice, because I've been doing it for such a long time. But I notice almost immediately when I am thinking about something, thinking about what I'm about to do, and step on the threshold. That's a moment of what I call, oops. And at that point, I back up over the threshold and go through again with the leg closest to the hinge side of the door. So um, this is in the spirit of a mistake is an indication that I'm not present or I don't yet know how to do something. I think that for many of us, the fear of making a mistake keeps us from just proceeding with whatever it is we're proceeding with and letting the body tell us when we've uh, gone out of attention and bring ourselves back into attention. So I recommend the threshold practice. And what I've noticed with doing that practice, which I do a lot in the course of a day, especially when I'm at home, but uh, when I'm traveling as well, um, what I observe is that the attention that I come into as I move through the doorway seems to heighten my capacity for attention, for placed attention in other circumstances. So doing one mindfulness practice a lot can lead to a kind of opening up uh, in terms of your capacity for presence in other situations. Um, And um, I, I, I would encourage all of us to not be afraid of doing a practice and then having a thought like boring, not this again, a resistance, Whatever shows up, observe, identify, name, come back to a bo- neutral body sensation and breath. And uh, the mind can be very tricky, very tricky, so that we get we get used to listening to what arises with, I I don't like this, I don't want to do this anymore. But what happens when I do a practice when I feel like doing it, when I don't feel like doing it, and when I don't really care one way or the other? Those are all opportunities for studying the mind. And if I only do what I feel like doing, I don't ever get to explore or get to know uh, that, Conditioned patterning in the mind that's at the dislike, dislike, don't want to do this end of the spectrum. One of the benefits, I think, in doing one mindfulness practice a lot over a long period of time is you will begin to have some uh, insights about conditioned patterns that arise in the mind as a result of doing a mindfulness practice of the sort that I'm talking about. Um, I'm not quite sure when I first started paying attention to studying the mind by studying what comes out of my mouth and training the mind by choosing what comes out of my mouth. But I've been doing, I've had that focus for, for a number of years. Um, I'm actually writing a Book. Uh, it's one of the few practice areas where I think writing a book about the practices is, a, is an appropriate uh, uh, way of working with, uh, with language practices. So for example, um, I often will hear what I call the great it. It feels scary. What I observe when people use the word, it, it's what is going on is a way of distancing myself from what I'm describing my experience being in the moment. So, it feels scary, doesn't feel so close in as right now in this situation, I notice feeling scared or frightened arising. Big difference. So, the use of the word, it, is an example of a a way to begin to bring attention to a word that you may be using frequently and not be aware of doing so. Uh, I'm also quite interested. having grown up uh, with a, a mistress of the habit of judgment. I think even in utero, I was hearing <laughs> the language that carries habitual judgment. My poor mother uh, ha- had the habit of ooh, that's such a long car. Why are you driving such a long car? And then she looked out the window, ooh, there's another long car, (laughs) for example. (laughs) And um, I, of course, uh, having grown up with my mother and her habit of judgment, uh, developed the habit of judgment myself. And um, I'm not sure when I began to pay attention to the suffering that comes from the habit of judgment, but that happened at some point some years ago. And um, I began to notice the habit, and when I would note, oh, habitual judgment, If there was something that I was observing that I wanted to describe, I'd go back and make the statement that I wanted to make, rather than the statement that came out in this habitual language format. And one of the antidotes that uh, has proven to be quite effective for me is the antidote for habitual judgment, which is quick. 10 things I'm grateful for. And what I have on my list need not have anything to do with the focus of the habitual judgment. I'm just, uh, in this moment, I'm grateful for our being here together. I'm grateful for the monastery allowing us to have this gathering together. I'm grateful that I remembered to bring my bench. I'm grateful that we have this mechanism so that you can... Uh, hear me I'm grateful that I noticed that my skirt was on inside out and I got it on right <laughs> correctly um, I'm grateful for the remembering the cushion that goes on top of the bench I'm sitting on I'm grateful that uh, we had a bell to use for beginning and ending meditation you see what i'm what I'm suggesting the gratitude list need not have anything at all to do with the focus of the habit of judgment so what i'm doing is i'm i'm training for a kind of mental groove that's wholesome i'm men, i'm training for the groove of appreciation and and practicing a kind of benign neglect for the habit of judgment so that that habit of judgment will eventually begin to kind of fill in and it's probably not ever going to go completely away but can be more like it's in the very far distant field where it's more like a kind of vague murmuring. That is possible, even for those of us with an intense um, habit. And um, I've been doing this... uh, practice with the habit of judgment and uh, the cultivation of appreciation for a number of years. And um, I still notice the habit coming up, but it comes up far less often. And when uh, there's a context or a relationship where that habit comes up, I I usually look to see if, particularly if there's a person who's the agent for triggering the habit of judgment, I think of that person as being my teacher. Uh, In the sense that it is the relationship I have with that person, um, and whenever I think of that person or see them, uh, that the habit arises, and I can notice it. Um, I actually have found the habit of judgment has declined rather significantly, um, until uh, my husband and I moved to where we're living now, and uh, the teacher for me in this case is the next door neighbor who doesn't live there very much of the time, uh, but she doesn't need to. <laughs> her presence is manifested in a number of different ways. And um, I just have to look out the kitchen window or look out the back door into her kitchen window, and there she is, waiting for me. She's very unhappy with uh, my husband and I are moving there is a kind of affront to her because the property we live on used to belong to her father and was part of a great big ranch and he subdivided it and i remember one day fairly recently my husband saying to me you know she's not angry at you in particular she's not angry with you as an individual, it's whoever has now bought the property. The person she's really angry with is her father, and we just get to carry the um, the, the unhappiness, the disappointment, the sadness that she feels at having the the original ranch broken up into smaller parcels and being developed by other people. Um, she, at one point, um, I went over to say hello to her, and she had a beautiful climbing rose up one side of the front porch, that was just screaming to be um, pruned. And she was telling—I was admiring the blossoms on the rose—and she told me about how much her mother loved roses, and particularly loved yellow roses. So I gave her a yellow rose, Graham Thomas, quite wonderful yellow rose and planted it for her. And she proceeded to let it go to death's door for want of water. (laughs) So I finally went and dug it up and took it away because I just couldn't bear to watch this plant wither away. So what I find interesting is that when you find somebody where you've got a relationship with this kind of heat, you can rest assured that there'll be something juicy showing up periodically when you least expect it. And um, I actually have this woman's name on my altar where I have the names of my teachers. And I won't move her name off the altar until uh, her function as a teacher for me to see the untrained parts of my mind. When that is done, if it's ever done, I might move her name off the altar, but I'm not planning on it anytime time. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, to go back to the threshold practice, um, what I've noticed is that having a mindfulness practice, uh, such as the threshold practice, that I do a lot has the effect of a kind of extension of the field of awareness, so that I'm not just in attention in that moment of going through the doorway, uh, but my capacity for a more extended um, sphere of attention uh, is affected positively as well. Uh, So I want to encourage and invite each of you to consider uh, picking up a mindfulness practice and doing it a lot for a long time. Don't be in a rush to be done with it. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, in the first book that he, uh, he wrote that became widely known called The Miracle of Mindfulness, in chapter five, he lists a number of mindfulness practices that are applied to ordinary daily activities like washing dishes, etc. And if you read that chapter, you'll immediately get a, a very clear uh, sense about how you can take a mindfulness practice and then apply it to. Uh, throughout your life, not just in your formal meditation. And my experience is that the more I do a mindfulness practice, um, both on and off the cushion, or in this case, on and off the bench, Um, I notice doing mindfulness practices uh, in the context of driving quite helpful. Um, I recently had to have my driver's license renewed. And um, because it had been a certain number of years since I had my license uh, issued, I also had to take a written test, which meant I better study the new driver's handbook. There were a lot of things in there I'd never seen before. One of the uh, suggestions in the book was that if you're driving at night And you, uh, as I do uh, on the uh, 128, which is a two-lane road, and I'm often driving home at night, so the headlights of the oncoming cars uh, are quite glary. And I notice if I keep my eye on the white line that's on the right side of the road, I'm looking at the white line and my part of the road. I'm not turning directly into the headlights. And I, I don't get um, startled or go into a, a kind, of, kind of momentary blindness from the glare of the lights. So that's an example of a uh, mi- mindfulness practice that is focusing my attention, placing my attention on that white line on the far side of the lane that I'm driving in, especially at night. Um, I have a friend who uh, has quite a strong anger habit, and um, he's a very sweet, most of the time, a very sweet, uh, mild-mannered person. But when he gets in the car, he turns into a terror, yelling at the other drivers, honking, telling them to get out of the way, driving really fast, passing on both sides of whatever car he's passing. Um, so I, sugge- I said, uh, who did you learn this from? He said, oh, my father. Um, he said, "My, you think I have a bad anger habit. My father's has it much worse. And I said, is your father still driving? He said, well, he is in me. So I suggested to him that he make some promise to himself about how he was going to conduct himself once he got into the car, before he got into the car. And then once he takes his seat and puts his hands on the steering wheel to remind himself about what the practice is that he's attempting to follow, and keeps forgetting because he gets so furious at the other drivers, which is to drive with attention within the speed limit and not getting focused on what other drivers are doing in a way that pulls him away from driving the car he's in. And the last time I talked to him, I said, how's it going? And he said, "Mm, 20% of the time, I'm doing quite well. And he was, of course, beating himself up because it was 20% of the time. I said, that's terrific. And I could see his jaw kind of drop. What do you mean, terrific? I've got another 80% to go. I said, but you started. I think it's very easy to see what we aren't doing and not celebrate what we are able to do. And I think often we're not imaginative in the way we put reminders around our lives for whatever it is we're uh, practicing. So the, um, the other practice that I wanted to mention, which I've, I've mentioned here before, but um, it it's came up actually in a couple of interviews I did with uh, people earlier today, and it's very much on my mind. And this is a practice that is described as an antidote to anger. Uh, that I call mouth yoga, you lift the corners of the mouth slightly, and you hold the lift for three breaths. You can't do that and still be thinking about why you're so angry with somebody about something, because to sustain that slight lift at the corners of the mouth, you have to bring some attention to that part of the face. So. Please, would you join me? Some of you are smiling too much. <laughs> just the slightest lift. <laughs> but just do it again. <laughs> OK, so um, what I would like uh, from, from uh, some of you is a description of uh, a situation where you'd like a mindfulness antidote, if you're willing to do this in public. <laughs> Believe me, you have lots of company. Oh, this yes, the microphone. Anybody up for Oh, uh, two brave persons, excellent have to talk into it like an ice cream cone yeah
1: listening to your story about this uh, friend driver uh-huh. i'm base i'm a nurse i'm basically a very calm easygoing person but i can be a demon behind the steering wheel too especially driving in berkeley i live in berkeley i work in berkeley and i do all my driving here and uh i'm a completely different person on the freeway the r- rare times that i'm on there but in berkeley we have such an eclectic group of drivers And I have to go around the campus to get to work. And uh, God forbid on those days that I work not in ICU but in the recovery room and start at 10. Because Mm -hmm. the students are on the campus. I I have lots of room for practice. (laughs) I will strive to do that.
0: Well, what I think can be quite useful is to have set a clear intention for what it is you want to do. So... in in this case, if you want to bring attention to the habit of anger when you're driving, you set that as a clear intention, which includes the willingness to notice when you don't keep the intention, when you suddenly have a flare of anger when you're driving, or at some other time, because that's where your work is. That's where your edge is. And if I'm willing to notice where my edge is, then I can be gradually begin to bring increased attention to that moment, that that particular situation that's a, a kind of trigger, if you will. Yeah. Uh, the, there's a woman back here who had her hand up.
2: Um, well, I'm currently... Um, experiencing the joys and challenges of my daughter, her partner, and her two children staying with me temporarily um, uh, until they move into their new home. Uh, It's been a month, and it's likely to be another two months. And, um... Two
0: months? (laughs) Oh. Uh
2: Uh-huh.
0: You know the expression about fish? Pardon? You know the expression about fish?
2: Tell me. Guests
0: like fish begin to smell after three days. Yeah,
2: I I, I know the story of the man who came to dinner. Uh-huh. Believe me, um, but this is my daughter, and um, I'm I'm really doing pretty well. But the challenge is her partner, who is, you know, kind of a well-meaning big galoot who kind of says he's gonna but doesn't, you know. Uh, he'll he'll help with the, you know, the cleaning up of the dishes, but, you know, he doesn't really finish it, or he'll say he's gonna do the garbage, but doesn't really do it, you know, um, or doesn't complete it. So, um, I'm, I'm really, you know, my challenge has been not to be critical, and I have actually gotten some kudos about my restraint, um, but <laughs> it's becoming harder.
0: Well, um, My recommendation is that you take well-timed walks out of the house and that you might say, given that that they've been with you as long as they have, you might say to your daughter's partner, "Um, I appreciate your offer to wash the dishes or take out the garbage, and I want to give you some feedback about how to do the job 150% perfectly. And it may not be the way you'd like to take the garbage out, but this is the way I'd like you to take the garbage out. Understanding that the only mind you can mind is yours. You can make some very clear requests about those kinds of physical transactions, but, you know, maybe this person will be interested in having you accompany him through the garbage removal or not. But you can say uh, there, there are some ways in which I like to have the garbage taken out, and there, uh, there are some ways in which I would say now the dishes are finished being washed. The dishes include the pots, the pans, the sink, The gunkus in the drain. Ah, the gunkus in the drain, yes. I I have some lovebirds. And when I'm away, my husband will clean their water dish. They take the newspaper from the floor of the cage and rip it up into little confetti pieces and drop it in the water. He just dumps the water down the drain. And of course, I come home. And he said, I don't understand why the sink isn't draining. And I pick up the drain, there's all this nice little wet newspaper. I mean, they're just <laughs> some things that aren't worth losing your state of mind over. <laughs> Two more months. <laughs> Two more months? Oh, yeah, yeah. Lots of walks. Hope the weather holds. <laughs> yeah, I I think having... Uh, Having people stay with you where you're actually sharing the kitchen and the household and um, can be a strain. Uh, we fortunately have uh, some little uh houses where people stay when they come for retreats, and sometimes I go stay in one of the little houses, and I let the guests have the house. It's just better for my state of mind anyway. I wish you well. When in doubt, think blue. Surround all of you with the, the, it's the color that's associated with the Buddha and his aspect as healer.
2: Well, there's a, besides that, there's, I'm fortunate enough to have a sewing room and a, and a door. So I have two doors that I can ah, sort of close myself off to. Nice. So that's helpful.
0: Very nice. Good luck. As somebody over here, we need the microphone. Just just pass it along. It'll, it'll find its way over here to uh, Medicine Buddha Blue. I,
3: I wish. Actually, I work in a middle school in Oakland, and we're not allowed to wear blue, because it's one of the gang colors. Oh, um, <laughs> really? Yeah, blue or red, which kind of knocks out two-thirds uh. of the color wheel there. Um, so I'm actually the visual art teacher at a middle school in East Oakland. Um, and I, I, we're working on a stand-up comic piece, but that's a different story. Um, so most of my kids are poor, and they're great. But there's, they're 12 years old, so there's a lot of hormonal activity. Boys, and girls, boys and girls mixed? Boys and girls mixed, a lot of anger. Uh, a lot of rudeness. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of using it as my, sp- or I'm tr- my goal is to use it as my spiritual practice with the kids. And I've gotten some ideas actually tonight that I do want to bring to my classroom. But I am thrown off center um, every day. <laughs> so I don't know if that's enough information. But do um, uh, you have an idea for? Yeah, let me be, make a suggestion yeah. about
0: how you listen to what the kids say. hmm It's what I call the 98% rule. 98% of what any of us says is a snapshot of what's arising in the speaker's mind. Wait, say that again? 98%, in this case, Mm -hmm. 98% of what you're saying is, it's 98% about what's up in your mind stream, what's important to you, where your attention is. And even if you're using a lot of you statements, you always and you never, and a lot of judging and blaming. If I listen from that standpoint, I don't take what the speaker is saying personally, and I am more likely to listen a bit longer than I I might otherwise. And when I do respond, I'm responding to what I'm hearing, is of concern or matters to the speaker who's talking to me so I've worked with kids of this in this age range mm-hmm. uh, a fair bit over the years um, and I, I actually uh, give me an adolescent just about any time, and I think I've died and gone to heaven. I, I like the age yeah. a lot, yeah. because it's like everything is up for grabs. Yeah, I mean, it's filled
2: with um, yeah.
0: and And um, kids who were poor, mm-hmm. kids who were probably in a troubled uh, home environment, mm-hmm. uh, where the, so there's a lot of acting out, mm-hmm. can be, I think, a challenge. Mm-hmm. And if I listen to a child coming out of that kind of circumstance Mm -hmm. where no matter what they say, I'm really hearing this is what matters to this kid. This is what this kid's upset about. This is what this kid understands. This is what this kid feels I'm going crazy over. I don't take it personally. And I notice that my capacity for listening Mm -hmm. uh, becomes much more body-based. From the neck down, and I will often practice reflecting back what I've heard, in the spirit of, this is what I think. Uh, this is what I heard you say. Did I hear you accurately? So that I'm always giving the speaker mm-hmm. the um, the authority to be the expert about what they said, what they meant, what they are trying to communicate.
3: Um, it's, okay. <laughs> Is it, does that I, I mean, there's actually a piece that I'm thinking, I mean, I was kind of hooked on the first part of what you said, of what I'm hearing the students say might be a reflection, or what I'm experiencing in my classroom might be actually a reflection of what I'm also putting out. So what I've been...
0: I wouldn't start there. Yeah, well... I'd have that part mm-hmm. of what you're looking at. Yeah.
3: I mean, if I'm concerned about the chaos that the kids... That I'm saying, oh, the kids dwell in chaos and is making me crazy, but then yeah, I—it's making me crazy. Right. Okay, thank ah. you. Ah, um, so what in I'm noticing, the book. yeah, is that I'm in bringing crazy. the book craziness. I'm writing—it's yeah.
0: making me crazy. Yeah, when the kids are doing X, Y, and Z, I notice feeling crazy arises. I know it's not the way we're used to talking, mm-hmm. but it's more accurate.
3: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, so, what so I,
0: I, I, I identify the, the trigger and what is coming up in me, because I have some say about my reaction. Okay. I can train for listening rather than, what do you mean? That kind of.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't quite go there. But no, I
0: didn't actually yeah. imagine that you did. <laughs> it's like
3: how do we you know, bring it back in?
0: And um, you know, one of the things you might do is to invite the kids to have a vote about uh, periods of calm, would, which mm-hmm. might be beneficial. Mm-hmm. And um, any one of them could hit a bell. And when the bell sounds, we're all. can we all agree to be quiet until the bell, this bell, is a little dead? I mean, it actually did better on my hand. Isn't that interesting? If you get a bell mm-hmm. where the sound lingers and everybody in the class is willing to just, be quiet until it, they can't hear the bell anymore. Something like that, yeah. that the kids can be in charge of. I think that's a thing. Um, that might make a difference as yeah. well. Okay, thank you. Um, chaos may be familiar, and it may not be wholesome.
3: Right. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on chaos, yeah. just in yeah. terms of the physics. Yeah. Um, Okay, I, mean, I don't want to take up more of your time. Okay, thank you.
0: There's somebody back there, the hiker, right? What? Are you the hiker? No. No, I thought you were leading people on a hike. No, that, was that person was sitting there, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's the seat. No, he's not sitting there
1: now. <laughs> well, I have a light-hearted one. Um, I've noticed recently that I talk to myself a lot. And I go, oh, that's okay. Because I don't know, maybe I'm trying to forgive myself. Or I don't know where I'm going with it. But uh, in my life throughout the day, it's like, oh. If
0: I I, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Um,
1: I'm talking about talking to myself yes. throughout the day. Yes. Um, I don't know if that's healthy or not.
0: <laughs> well, I'm not much help because I talk to myself all the time yeah I, I I'm keeping myself company. You know, I'm hmm. walking around looking at some plant that needs some leaves taken off it, and just sort of muttering, and then the dog comes along and I talk to the dog, and I talk to not just other human beings, but I also talk to myself i i don't so what's the problem?
1: <laughs> well, that's why I Maybe said it's kind of lighthearted, to club. like huh. We call
0: it Talking to Ourselves Club.
1: Yeah, a new book for you.
0: (laughs) I'd rather just have the company. (laughs) Thank
1: you. I talk to trees, and I talk to tree spirits and things.
0: uh, Um, Do you... Is there somebody in your life complaining about the fact that you talk to yourself?
1: No, I think I was just being self-critical.
0: Ah, now there's... There's some work. Quick, ten things I'm grateful for. Yeah. Thank you. The habit of criticism, self-criticism, self judgment. You know, the in the Buddhist text, what you what's in the basement is what's called self loathing. And for some of us who have the habits in that general category. There's an enormous heartache and discomfort. Um, There's a book, he's revised it. I haven't seen the new revision yet, by a man named Richard Carson called Taming Your Gremlin. And uh, the very fact that he's not talking about taming your inner critic, he's changed it to your gremlin. And he kind of guides you through different exercises, include, including drawing a picture, writing the dialogue, um, which I have found um, very useful in changing one's relationship to that habitual voice that carries the habitual judgment. Yes? <laughs> oh, you're the one. You moved your seat. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So you know Carson's work. Yeah, he's. He's. Uh, I think he's very skillful, very skillful. And um, I have a student who. Uh, who has a sister, and when her mother died, she left all of her estate to her sister. And throughout these two women growing up as sisters, there was always that kind of disparity in the attention that they got from their mother. And um, this woman um, has found Carson's book really helpful because she finally got That her judging voice was actually her mother's voice, and that gave her his writing gave her some ways of of stepping away from that habitual patterning, which leads to so much suffering. So I'm glad you're doing some work with that. I I think it's uh, very very useful, very useful.
1: I wanted to ask, um, in the beginning of your talk, you talked about identifying and a couple uh, steps and orders. Observing,
0: observing, identifying, and naming. Okay,
1: observing, thank you. Those
0: of us who are bird watchers are quite, have developed some skill in observing, identifying, Mm -hmm. and sometimes (laughs) naming. (laughs) When I drove uh, down our road, Gosh, was it really just this morning? There was a huge occipiter, big hawk, with big white splotches at the ends on the top of each, at the end of each wing. And one of the people I met with this afternoon is quite an experienced birder. He said, beats me. We looked in the bird book. We couldn't find anything that looks like it. I said, well, I saw it. He said, well, just because it's not, Not in the book doesn't mean it doesn't exist, (laughs) Um, but I found both uh, going out and looking at wildflowers and um, studying uh, the leaf structure on plants and um, bird watching very helpful in cultivating my capacity for observing and describing. Because those, once you develop those skills, they're highly transferable. You don't have to just observe and identify and name what goes on in the mind. In fact, it might be uh, more skillful to start with wildflowers or leaves. The external patterning of a leaf are the leaves opposite on the stem or alternating i mean it's a whole the whole world of botany is is begins to open up the the world we live in so okay anybody else yes
3: i i always find that um when winter is approaching i start getting very anxious because the less light and i always seem to go through periods of of depression in january and february and just i've just started recently notice that i'm already getting anxious about that and i i thinking there's this has been a pattern that's ongoing for the last couple of years and mm-hmm. i really don't want to go through that again this winter or maybe not necessarily not go through it, but be able to go through it a lot more compassionately. Well, there are some practical things
0: you can do. Get some, they're expensive, but they're worth it. Get some full-spectrum light bulbs and put them in your house. And um, partially because I was traveling a lot some years ago, my biological clock would get stuck, and I'd come home from the East Coast or Alaska, and I'd be on, you know, I'd be awake at at night and asleep in the daytime. And you can get a a light box, Uh, and I use it after I've been traveling out of the time zone where I live. I actually will meditate for half an hour in front of the light box. And within two or three days, my biological clock has reset itself. Mm-hmm. And um, it may be that if you were to spend some time, if you just get a few of the full-spectrum light bulbs and, and sit uh, in a room with those light bulbs on, that may make a difference. Um, I also think, and you might just sit with this, How much of going into winter is clouded by the Michigas around the winter holidays? Um, About 20 years ago, my husband and I sent a note to all of our friends and family announcing we are no longer celebrating any winter holidays. (laughs) Have a great time, and we'll talk to you in January. We, I, I love having a tree. I have a collection of wonderful old uh, Christmas tree ornaments. So we celebrate the winter solstice and go somewhere where we can see the night sky. Sometime around the winter solstice, uh, turn off all the electric lights and have lots of candles on that that night. So I. F- Figured out a way to step out of what I found the winter holiday season to be uh, difficult, the ways in which I found that time of year to be difficult, but also asked myself, but what do I enjoy? Well, the things I enjoy are what I just mentioned, candle lights and the tree, and, and seeing people, seeing friends. But the full-spectrum lights really have made a big difference in the winter
3: and then also, how do you overcome sort of the uh pressures to buy and uh, get i just in that I job?
0: just sent out very sweet notes saying i quit <laughs> I announced, and it's not too late oh, it's almost too late, but i ju- uh, my husband and I just said to everybody, we are no longer celebrating uh, the exchanging of gifts, we put all our attention into celebrating people's birthdays, scattered through the year, and we do absolutely no gift exchanging um, around Christmas, Hanukkah, you know, the whole. And um, we were on the receiving end of some grouchiness for a couple of years, and I decided um, it's worth it to me to stick to my guns about what makes sense for me to do and what not to do. I also do a retreat starting two nights, not the day after Christmas, but the day after that. We do a five-day retreat, so going into New Year's. So uh, New Year's Eve, we spend going, reviewing the year that's just concluding, what do I regret? And then on New Year's morning, Uh, what are the promises I want for this new year. And uh, it's a very sane way to spend that holiday. So we've run out of time, and I want to mention that... Oh, I'm going to do a one day on Sunday on uh, language practices at Spirit Rock, and there's an announcement back there that's this color. Okay? Okay. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.